you know, we even had customers. I remember when we had to tell uh, one customer in Europe that uh, we were no longer going to be advancing our portal offering. They actually cried. Welcome to the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Your one stop to learn about the technology that's powering the future of commerce. Here are your hosts, Dirk and Kelly. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Kelly Götsch. Hello. And today, our special guest is Bob Burke, a former CEO of ATG. Hi, Bob. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for being on the show. Um, so be before we uh, get straight into the topic, and I think we have a lot of uh, uh, interesting things to discuss today, would you mind on just giving um, a quick introduction to the audience about yourself? Sure. So uh, probably most relevant, I was CEO of Art Technology Group, also known as ATG, from December 2002 to January 2011. Uh, I was the third CEO of the company. And after the acquisition by Oracle in early 2011, I've been a venture partner with a private equity firm and currently serve on the boards of several companies, uh, both here in the U.S. and also Europe. Yeah, you really had a, a front row seat to all of these uh, commerce platform changes. Uh, you know, you were the the driver of many of these changes. So great to have you on the episode. Um, what was the history of ATG before you arrived? So you took over, what year was that? 2003-ish? 2002. So it was December 2002 um, when I started as CEO. But uh, brief history of the company was it was founded in 1991 by a couple of guys out of MIT, um, as many software companies do, it started as a consulting firm. But by roughly 1995, it had evolved to being a software company and it was probably best known back in the day for its Dynamo application server. Um, the company then IPO'd in 1999 and grew very rapidly. Um, back through all of 2000, kind of um, defying the dot-com crash, actually grew uh, over 5x from 1999 to 2000. Um, and then when the original dot-com implosion eventually caught up with virtually all companies, including ATG, then it started um, declining. So by the time I became the company's third CEO, um, and in, like I said, 2002, the revenues were in sharp decline, and ATG's market value um, as a public company was roughly about the same as its cash balance. So did they, how was it or why did you took that role? Was it that somebody called you and said, hey, hey, Bob, we, we, we're getting out of this uh, uh, dot-com bubble burst. Uh, we, we need somebody to, to, to re-ramp and rescale the business. Or, and, and, and what was your thought at that time? So what, what was the main reason why you said, okay, this is uh, my, my next endeavor? Yeah, so um, I did know somebody that was on the board and that was uh, leading the search. Um, so that was part of it. They knew of me and, and knew of my background from prior to ATG. Uh, I had also been, I was also CEO of a consulting company and uh, knew about ATG and its offerings. And we actually used some of those offerings in building some of our solutions. So I knew that they had good products. I knew that they had good customers. Um, in the course of meeting with the company to interview for the CEO job, I uh, thought they also had good people. Um, and the other thing is at the time, uh, while ATG certainly had its challenges, uh, it was a pretty challenging time in, in the technology market in general. So 
I figured it had, uh, you know, kind of the basic raw ingredients of good customers, uh, good products, good employees, and I figured that uh, something could be done with, with the company. Yeah, and it was still very early at that time for enterprise commerce platforms, right? So, my, 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 actually, I, I don't know if, if, if uh, you like that, but I would call ATG um, as, as one-off or if not the godfather of, of uh, enterprise commerce platforms, right? Because it was, was so early uh, in, in, in the 90s and, and basically they created a category. But when you jumped on board 2002, and how did the commerce platform landscape look like? Yeah, well, I'll talk a little bit more about the commerce landscape later. But, you know, like I said, it was a challenging time for software companies in general um, and the tech industry in general. If you remember back, uh, people had spent a lot of money trying to get ready for Y2K, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> about that by now. And they also had spent a lot of money in the late 90s trying to figure out what to do with the Internet. So, um so there was, and then what you had, of course, was the dot-com implosion in 2000, and you had 9-11 in 2001. So the, the tech landscape in general uh, was relatively bleak, and, and like we can get into, but the software uh, market for commerce had its own set of challenges. But it was in part tied to that, that more macro technology industry problem. And who were your competitors back then? So Intershop was on the market. Um IBM Webster Commerce, who else was out there? Yeah, so um, interesting, by 2002, uh, there had been some changes in that. So when I first started, um, the, uh, the landscape included some other players that may not be always mentioned uh, with, with enterprise commerce platforms like Amazon, for example. And uh, there were other companies out there Uh, there were public companies like Digital River and GSI Commerce. Um, the companies in the, particularly in the U.S. market that competed directly with, with ATG was uh, Broad Vision, IBM, and Blue Martini. Um, but, you know, out of those, clearly IBM was the biggest and clearly the most feared, and that was for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, obviously back, in, especially back in the day, they had a, A very big market presence. They had a much bigger sales force, obviously, than any of the rest of us did. And they also had an existing footprint in most accounts. So uh, they also had a, a good commerce offering. At least that's what it was considered to be back in the day. And, and if you looked at the analyst reports um, back when I started at ATG, they were in the lead. So, but just from a competitive standpoint, uh, WebSphere, which their commerce offering was part of, was a massive portfolio. I think it had, you know, 400 plus SKUs at the time, at least. And so, um, you know, it allowed them to aggressively bundle and discount. Um, and if a IBM customer had what was called an enterprise license agreement or some kind of eat all you can master contract in place, they might already own all of the, uh, the rights or licensing to WebSphere Commerce. So they could basically get it from IBM at little or no additional charge. So but that was the, the big, the, the big landscape was, was, um, you know, um, was IBM and to a lesser extent, people like Blue Martini, Broad Vision, you know, Intershop, those kind of folks. Uh, maybe one interesting thing, uh, one other competitor that we were wary about was Amazon. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, remember Amazon 
differently, and they, they may remember, some may remember that they were actually the online store for Porter's books, uh, which are now in a business. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably fewer people realize that for a while, uh, Amazon actually offered a enterprise outsourcing arrangement for uh, major online retailers. So they actually had customers like Toys R Us and Target. And Target had been a satisfied ATG front-end commerce uh, customer, but thought that Amazon would be a better in a better position to handle their back-end operations, uh, especially fulfillment. So they actually switched for a few years off from ATG and, and went to Amazon. So while they, uh, that didn't happen in a lot of situations, we were already starting to see competitors like that as well. I guess... The other part of this was competition on Wall Street, which was was very different. Um, by 2002, Broadvision and Blue Martini had faded away, and IBM didn't break out the results for uh, commerce. So the you know if you were an investor and you wanted to invest in commerce, the two other public names were Digital River and GSI Commerce. So even though they were very different companies, and we would have to go try to explain that to Wall Street, it definitely uh, definitely muddied the, the waters. So. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny you talk about IBM WebSphere Commerce, right? So back in the day, the commerce was part of the application server. And, you know, I remember when I started as a, you know, a developer working with ATG, you know, working with Dynamo application server, and that was the, that was the big app server for a while. And I, I know at, at some point, there was a decision made to f- double down on commerce and jettison the application server business. Was that a decision that you were involved with, or was that made before you joined? Um, and, and walk us through that that decision, because back in the '90s and 2000s, it was still a very much open question if ATG was going to be an application server company or a commerce uh, provider. Yeah. So when I first got to, uh, I was very much involved with that. So when I got to the company, um, the company had already been thinking about coming up with additional applications. We had commerce. We were also thinking of additional applications in areas like marketing uh, automation, for example, uh, to run on top of the application server. So this was a very difficult decision for the company. Um, On the one hand, when we analyzed what had been actually sold at ATG, over 90% of the company's revenues in 2002 were from Dynamo application server and related infrastructure offerings like Portal. and while we had a very solid uh, commerce product, commerce software sales back in 2001, 2002 were challenging. Um, you know, customers still had a lot of uh, commerce software sitting on the shelf, so to speak, or shelfware as they used to call it. Um, and you also had big infrastructure companies like IBM and BEA who were pretty aggressive in selling their application server suite. So BEA actually had a commerce offering, even though it was a lesser offering than IBM, they also bundled in that with their their app server. Um, And, you know, the the scale of those companies were were much larger. So you looked at the market share for the application server, uh, IBM and BEA both enjoyed, um, you know, 30% plus each. Uh, We had, I think, about 8%. And then there was a number of other um, smaller slices that other people owned. So it was pretty clear that given the fact that we um, 
you know, couldn't discount and we couldn't, we didn't have as many other products and services to leverage like our friends at, at IBM, that we were going to have to get more on the, the application side and, and eventually get out of the app server business. Um, I would say, by the way, the app server business was also changing at the time. You probably remember JBoss is an app server. So there was also an open source element that was coming into the market. So it, it was obviously very competitive. And the pricing in many cases for an app server was going to zero or close to it. So uh, we had a lot of discussions inside the board. We talked with uh, BEA and IBM. And in the um, in the end, we decided that we would partner with IBM and that we would de-emphasize uh, Dynamo App Server. Um, it actually happened more quickly than we announced, but um, and then basically say that we were going to run ATG Commerce on top of WebSphere App Server, even though it was a competitive offering. Um, but it was, um, besides the product implications, though, it was also a very challenging decision in terms of the customer base, because when I joined ATG, the largest vertical for the company was financial services, for example. And Dynamo was sold to a wide variety of customers across a lot of industries. Um, and a lot of those customers, you know, thought very highly of the products, loved ATG. Um, and a lot of people like HSBC, for example, had invested heavily in their online presence with, with uh, ATG. And you know, we even had customers, I remember when we had to tell uh, one customer in Europe that uh, we were no longer going to be advancing our portal offering, they actually cried. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a big decision. It, it's um, probably the ultimate sign for product market fit, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah customer loyalty when somebody actually cries, uh, you tell them that they're not going to be in that business long in the long term. It was funny, though, when we... we um, we partnered with IBM. One thing you do when, when you became a WebSphere partner is that you gave them your app, your the one one reference app to actually test on it, and they would characterize the performance for you. So even though we had other applications, we gave them ATG Commerce, and IBM did an excellent job of uh, running that on, on WebSphere Commerce and declaring it was a wonderful application, and it was scaled uh, pure, except much to the... Uh, <laughs> chagrin of the people in the WebSphere commerce team really so it's pretty funny I have to say as a technologist uh, Daz was just a beautiful well architected clean app server it was beautiful Yeah. and then I started having to deal with uh, JBoss and WebLogic and yeah lots of you know bells and whistles there but nothing beats the just clean architecture and simplicity of Daz it works so well yep um, all right, so so you joined uh, you know late two thousand two. We were in the the bottom of the the uh, market there for tech, and I remember the stock price. I remember clearly checking the stock price once, and it was like eighty three cents. Mm-hmm. And you ultimately ended up selling to Oracle for what twenty dollars a share, something like that. No, they had a lot more shares. It was six dollars a share, but the market uh, valuation was over a billion dollars that we sold. Yeah. Uh, like I said, our market value at one time was down uh, more in the the uh, you know fifty to seventy million dollar range. It was basically what was cash we had on the balance sheet. So, 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 actually, so actually, by the way, one of the things that we're proud of is that I think we were ranked number five uh, value creation of a, a software in software companies. Um, from you know November or December two thousand and two to um, 
November 2010 when the deal was announced with Oracle. So hmm. a big, big change in market value. That's, that's impressive. So how did you do that? Um, you know, I, I saw it firsthand, but, you know, what was the strategy behind that? And how did ATG survive when, you know, so many others out there, Broad Vision, Blue Martini, I mean, take your pick, they all just died. So what was special about uh, ATG? Well, like I said, we had some good things to work with. And I think some of those companies that you just mentioned uh, were more challenged from a technology perspective. And, and you know, as you know, um, technology in many ways can be the long pole in the tent. Um, so I think we had a better starting position. I mean, to your point around DAS, a lot of the goodness around DAS, around, uh, you know, targeting and personalization, et cetera, were all attributes that we were able to retain uh, as middleware with the commerce platform. So... We had that going for us, but there were many things that were probably less obvious that we had to do from an operational, a financial, and uh, an investor perspective that I, I won't bore you with. But you know, if we hadn't done them, uh, we wouldn't be talking today. Um, so you know, for example, we had um, you know lots of real estate all over the world that had been leased in our name, and some of it was for like fifteen-year terms, right? So. But I think, you know, other than those reasons, I think the way that we got from survive mode to thrive mode, um, you know, was, was included a few of the following reasons. So one was we had a, um, a renewed focus, obviously, on commerce. That was that was big. Um, we not only had the decision to make about getting out of the app server, but which application area that we wanted to focus on. And there were choices like you know, uh, going in more of a marketing or marketing automation direction was certainly one. And we picked commerce. Um, and we did that because we had, you know, not only a, a great commerce offering, but we also had some great reference customers. And we just, we didn't know that, you know, if we went into some of these other esoteric areas at the time around customer experience or um, that are now more commonplace, people weren't necessarily buying that as a category back in those days. So, uh, that was one. Uh, another one was that we made a series of acquisitions. Um, it helped, uh, you know, make us more of a application company. It grounded out our portfolio. Um, and then we did a lot of things around sales and marketing uh, to focus on, you know, various geographies and verticals that we had a chance of winning in. Uh, like I said, we had to, unfortunately, some of the, the verticals that we had served in the past, like financial services, uh, going with the commerce direction, uh, kind of narrowed that kind of capability, but um, certainly, um, you know, sales and marketing was a big part of it. And then the other part of it, I think, was, um, you know, the talent that we had as a company. Um, I think that that's in several, you know, ways. One is we got a great base to start off with. That was probably the most important. But I think the other part that we were able to do was to add to that talent base, um, and uh, some of it came by acquisitions. A lot of people we hired directly into the company. So I do think, by the way, that just as an aside, that's probably the thing that I'm most uh, proud about about ATG is that you find uh, ATG alumni across um, a lot of commerce companies out there today. And they're generally in pretty critical roles. Um, so I would say probably of all the things that we did, probably the most enduring of all those was our uh, was the people language. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, right? And I think having this call is a proof point for that, right? So um, it's uh, 
uh, two ATG guys and one Hybris guy. Uh, I will say it. Call <laughs> here. Um, speaking about acquisitions um, that you briefly mentioned, right? So over the course from I think 2004 to 2010, um, there, there have been a couple of companies that you acquired with ATG, right, or through ATG: um, Primus, Cleverset, Estara, Instant Service, and so on. Um, was there a common pattern behind that and, and a common reasoning on, on what you had been looking for and where you wanted to get the company to? And, and also, um, I would say the, the um, idea behind of either going a sweet kind of approach and, and, and growing horizontally on the offering um, versus um, uh, focusing on, on best of breed um, in specific segments. Yeah. So we did acquire the four companies you mentioned. That was that was the uh, the only four, by the way. We, okay. Um, and we had, I guess, uh, two main strategies. Um, we did consider, by the way, a lot of other M and A alternatives over time. Um, and to your point around uh, best of breed and you know versus a suite or portfolio, um, we didn't pursue, by the way, a lot of back-end systems like order management and fulfillment, for example, because we thought it would take us off uh, our game. And we also thought that there was, uh, you know, more best-of-breed kinds of capabilities out there. So in those areas, we, we focus mostly on our integration capabilities. Um, but, you know, in terms of the acquisitions themselves, uh, the, the first acquisition was Primus, and we bought that because we saw the need to offer a better post-purchase experience for e-commerce shoppers. Um, we had looked in the market for opportunities to partner uh, or integrate, and we didn't really find anything that we liked. Uh, most of those kinds of uh, systems were more focused on, uh, quite frankly, things like help desk support or something. So you go back and look at, you know, what the service vendors were providing. It was, it was more IT in nature, not driven towards more of a consumer angle. So we thought we got Primus, uh, which had a lot of great things underneath the covers that we could um, evolve that to be more of a consumer uh, service and support and customer experience uh, capability. Um, so we did that. So that was the first acquisition. Um, the other three acquisitions were all in a similar um, mindset around trying to figure out how we could deploy and deliver uh, browser-based solutions uh, to both our existing platform customers and organizations that were not already ETG platform customers. Obviously, the uh, the one downside about uh, having a highly complex uh, client-server-based approach like ATG was, and on-premise for the most part, was the complexity of deploying it, right? And so we thought if we could um, have offerings that would make that easier, that we could deploy, and actually deploy uh, for platforms other than ATG, we would have the benefit of, of seeing behaviors across a wide uh, set of, of, of companies and organizations, and that in turn would help automate things like merchandising and recommendations and customer experience, and, and then hopefully, obviously, conversion rates. So it was all something that was in a category that Forrester used to call uh, optimization services that you might remember. Um, uh, this was services delivered via the cloud, and at the time, we thought it was... Um, 
it was a, a pretty differentiated and compelling go-forward plan. So all three of those acquisitions were various piece sets, so to speak, for that. Yeah, and I think at the end, they, they all worked out, right? So soon after the, the last acquisition, um, the uh, uh, ATG acquisition itself then by, by Oracle um, happened to be announced, right? I think that was late 2010 and then early 2011, I think, um, yeah, the transaction was, was Yeah, it was announced in November of 2010. And the deal actually, the uh, merger acquisition actually um, closed on in January 2011. Can you say a little bit more about that, just on how that transaction happened? Um, was there long-term partnership already happening before? Was it a shorter period of time, unexpected? Um? Yeah, I won't get into a lot of details uh, beyond what was publicly disclosed because we were both public companies at the time. But I guess a few comments about it. Um, One, we uh, had been uh, partners of sorts. Uh, we were looking at more partnership opportunities, I would say, with, with Oracle. Um, if for no other reason, then obviously they had a big presence in, in physical retail uh, stores. And we wanted to you know, extend our reach in, in partnerships you know, in Omnichannel. So that's what drove part of it. I think... You know, in the acquisition itself, first and foremost, you know, Oracle offered a um, compelling premium uh, to our share price. And as a public company, we felt compelled to, to accept the offer on behalf of our shareholders. But uh, as it turns out, and this was obviously public, uh, we had raised capital earlier in 2010 that we had not yet uh, spent or invested Uh, and we were off executing our own strategic plan. So, so yes, the uh, it was it was a surprise. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the evolution of uh, the customers of ATG. So, you know, back in the the '90s and, and early 2000s, um, ATG was probably the first commerce platform that they ever had, right? And I remember implementing like uh, DSW, for example you know, in the US, right? That was the very first, it was all Greenfield. They hired a pretty senior exec to come in and run their e-commerce business. They bought ATG and, uh, you know, and that was the very first time. Um, and there were a lot of organizations like that, but, but how did um, the maturity of customers change uh, during your tenure and who bought ATG when you started? You know, of course you said a lot of financial services, who was buying it uh, by the time of uh, Oracle acquisition. Can you just talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the customers and the maturity and what they were doing with the platform? Yeah. Yeah. To just clarify the, they was uh, financial services was a big customer of uh, uh, industry vertical for, for ATG, but not for commerce per se. Right. Right. Um, so just, so I think when, when a lot of people think of commerce, um, you know, especially back in that era in, in 2002, 2003, they, they would, of course, first and foremost, think of B2C retail, right? Um, and perhaps, I guess, ATG had a broader perspective about vehicles, partially based um, on the fact that we sold application server software to a broader segment. So it might have been easier for us or more natural for us rather to think about other verticals other than retail. So not saying that retail wasn't highly important, it was, but we also focused on CPG, we also focused on media, 
And then later on, <clears throat> we also targeted uh, industries like telco, which turned out were a great fit for ATG capabilities. Um, so we would power, you know, AT&T.com or Vodafone's or Orange's online sale to consumers. We could do it at a very large scale, and the system was uh, could handle all of the complexity for all of the hundreds of integrations to back-end OSS systems. So um, that was who we targeted. Um, Perhaps maybe uh, more interesting was how various ATG customers evolved uh, their commerce operations um, and how they interacted with their consumers over time. Um, you know, when I joined ATG, it was typical, and you probably remember this, Kelly, for retailers to have, let's say, um, typical example would maybe have uh, hundreds of stores uh, maybe over a thousand stores. And then what they would do is they would treat their online or web store as one distinct store, right? So say if you had 700 stores located across the U.S., the online store might be designated as store number 701. And it competed with the physical stores as if it was just another retail location. So it often had its own dedicated inventory, it often had its own returns and services processes. Um, physical locations didn't fulfill online orders. Uh, they didn't want to handle returns from the online store. Um, and they, they had basically directly competitive selling goals in many cases. So even if the systems uh, supported omnichannel uh, capabilities, uh, the organization goals and rewards didn't generally promote a lot of cooperation. So, and that wasn't true just of retailers, by the way. I know of at least one telco um, that had built a completely separate and different website that was purpose-built to be and designed, deployed, and managed only by the stores, uh, employees of their physical stores. So the, the web sales didn't use that site uh, and uh, the physical store employees did not use uh, the telco site. And so it was, it was completely stovepiped. So um, obviously a lot of those things have changed, but um, that, I think that, that evolution has been one of the more interesting developments over time, along with obviously the, uh, the increase in B2C um, use cases and, and now D2C and marketplace kinds of, kinds of use cases. Yeah, it's been remarkable just to see the change, uh, you know, over the past even 20 years. Uh, it's been great to have a front seat, uh, you know, view to all of those changes. So exciting. Um, so after the acquisition, you left and became an investor at TCV. Can you tell us a little bit about TCV? Yeah, um, sure. Happy to. Um, so first of all, TCV is a growth oriented private equity company. Um, We've invested over $14 billion, roughly, since it was founded back in 1995. Um, we're focused exclusively on technology or technology-enabled businesses. Um, as our name implies, our model is somewhat unique in that we invest in private and public companies. And we often cross over So, uh, if our companies go from private to public. So at IPO, we're often a buyer and not a seller. So... I think that gives uh, people that are looking to have a high growth company and get IPO, it gives them additional comfort uh, that we're in support of that. Um, give a few uh, examples. TCB invests in both 
consumer-oriented companies. Uh, some examples of that include Netflix, Spotify, Peloton, Zillow, and Airbnb, um, Facebook, to name a few. And then on the B2B side, it's been companies like Splunk, uh, Twilio, ExactTarget, Sitecore, and Avalara. Yeah, sounds sounds like a good mix. Um, some of these names I have heard uh, once or twice. <laughs> no, it's um, <laughs> I think uh, 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 yeah, uh, impressive portfolio over time um, that that um, TCV and reputation that they have built out. So now being with them or supporting them um, since a while, what, what would be I would say high level technology trends? that you have seen coming up um, over the last couple of years from the perspective of an investor, maybe? Yeah. Some of these go over uh, even more, the la more than the last two years. I think one continuing theme that's been true uh, since I joined uh, up with TCB back in 2011 is that um, one big theme in tech is continues to be disruption, right? And I think you're seeing this in virtually every category whether it's on the consumer side or whether it's on the business-to-business um, -business software side. Um, so whether it's commerce or whether it's entertainment or how people work out, like with Peloton, um, you know, things are being disrupted. And obviously there's some technology drivers around this. Um, you know, mobility has certainly been one over the years and then cloud adoption, um, to name a couple. But You know, I think, you know, a lot of it is, is people's behaviors changing and, and allowing them to decide how, when, and where they're going to cons consume content, for example, or buy things or, or whatever. So I think that disruption uh, has gone across categories. And the categories, by the way, on the software side uh, are not just in the um, <clears throat> more consumer-oriented categories that people are familiar with, like commerce. They, they extend into... Uh, areas that are more in the back office, like office of the CFO type applications, right? So, um, so I would say, by the way, when I joined back in 2011 uh, with TCB, the cloud was still very much in its infancy. Um, and I, I still agree with the perspective that the cloud is still in its relatively early days, but um, the trends around moving to SaaS and how people do that and how to fully utilize Uh, more public cloud functionality, I think, also continue to be some underlying trends. Um, the last one I would bring up uh, is around utilization of, of things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, I guess I'm old enough to have seen uh, multiple waves of supposed adoption of artificial intelligence, but so I, I, I was, I've tended to be a bit skeptical, but um, I think certainly this is uh, a time when this is being uh, used on a more broad basis than ever before. And I do think that, you know, the ability to aggregate and access a lot of data in the cloud and do it economically certainly is help enable um, artificial intelligence, machine learning adoption. So those are some trends I would, I would mention. Yeah, sounds sounds like a great journey. And I think a lot of, lot of things to come and I couldn't agree more, right? And, and I also think, yeah, from mobility um, to, to artificial intelligence, um, um, uh, other areas of transportation, energy, um, uh, 
uh, yeah, we, we will see a lot more business models also being being bought in a different kind of way uh, and and enabled differently um, through technologies in the next couple of years um, that that are ahead of us. So I think that's um, yeah, uh, more, more exciting years uh, even to come. We are so. I think we can continue the head for, for at least one more hour, but unfortunately we're getting close to the end um, uh, of this podcast episode. But I have one, one last question, right? Um, especially as you had been shaping for so long the, the uh, uh, commerce platform industry. Um, how, from your perspective, has the commerce platform landscape changed um, since you um, became an investor um, and, and stepped out of an active role on, on shaping that industry? Yeah. So in, in many ways, it's it's changed dramatically. Talk about a little bit, maybe some ways it hasn't. But it's amazing to think of all the e-commerce option platform options, for example, that exist for small and mid-market sellers that were either not available or not as as usable or as robust a decade or less ago. Um, you know, you think about offerings like Wix or Woo for the very low end, or Shopify and big commerce up through the mid-market. Um, there's just a lot more options, um, and and obviously they've enjoyed tremendous success. It's also interesting to see how payments and other merchant services have been leveraged by various platform vendors uh, like Shopify. Um, when I think about omni-channel capabilities, they were certainly becoming available in 2011, but um, you know, for example, they they're not nearly as evolved as what you would see with the likes of New Store today, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and options and functionality for B2B is another area. Um, it was very little B2B functionality uh, built out in 2011. There was certainly some with, with folks like Hybris, um, but uh, that's another area that's, that's had you know, tremendous progress over the last 10 years or so. Um, I'd say the deployment and business models uh, for commerce have also involved, you know, there were SaaS offerings and GMV take rate models. Uh, certainly vendors like Demandware had them uh, in a different way. GSI Commerce had them. But back in 2011, the predominant deployment model was still on premise. Uh, and the primary business model was still based on pricing. It was somehow related to infrastructure or anticipated volumes, right? Not necessarily business success like people would affiliate with, with GMV. So, you know, I'd say a lot of these factors are pretty related. You know, when I was back in um, ATG back in 2002, enterprise software was still very much of an on-premise client server game, right, or world. Um, pricing and packaging back then was based largely on the max number of servers you would need at peak times. And that in turn was very much linked to what you thought the highest number of simultaneous sessions might be, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, might have very little to do uh, with how much, um, you know, GMB volume was actually being processed on the, on the site. Um, and meanwhile, you had customers or the actual merchants themselves did not want vendors like ATG or IBM to be accessing a lot of things behind their firewall, let alone seeing what their actual sales numbers were, right? So that was not something that people were, were fond of. So um, obviously in terms of architecture, a lot of things have changed since that client server paradigm. Um, you just think about all the frameworks that you get that you used to only get from legacy hardware or software vendors, and now you get things, uh, you know, like React from Facebook. Um, 
and also what you get available from the likes of AWS or Azure or, or GCP is it can be game changing for a lot of software companies. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I think the interesting thing though is some things have come sort of full circle from an architectural point of view. Um, when I started at ATG in 2002, the typical ATG Commerce customer used us for things like the catalog, card, checkout, personalization, et cetera, but then usually integrated a content management system from the likes of Interwoven and other components like a search engine, say, from the likes of Verity. Um, so the, the one reason, by the way, why we got into delivering some of our own capabilities around content management was that many of our customers were frustrated with integrating all this back in the day and wanted ATG to provide an easier uh, to integrate and deploy CMS of our own, for example. And this was true not of just ATG, but basically all the other commerce platform companies ran, ran into similar issues and ended up providing their own purpose-built CMS for commerce for a variety of reasons and as well as search engines, et cetera. So it's interesting to me is fast forwarding today's environment where we enjoy uh, vastly improved technology and, and various options. Um, great thing, one great thing is that customers can, can more readily use separate components if they want to and, and use, you know, approaches like headless in a more uh, seamless way. So. But some of it a little bit back to the future. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting these waves, right? And impressive to see just looking back twenty years um, how much has happened in this market um, and 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 how fast it has been growing and and, and change. And well, who knows? Maybe we have a podcast in in five years um, where we talk uh, that that. Uh, uh, Enterprise customers go back to monolith, right, and uh, uh, switch that pattern, right. So it's uh, who knows. Right, we, we we are getting to the end, Bob. Bob that was super exciting. Um, thanks for for being with us um, uh, uh, on our podcast um, and and for for sharing a lot of insights. Um, that was really so interesting for me, and I hope for everybody um, who was listening. And so thank you so much. Thanks, thank Bob. you. Appreciate you having me. Thanks.